CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London, now on the 25th and 26th of September this year. It's such exciting news, and I am looking forward to seeing all of you guys on Podcast Row and checking out all of the exhibitors. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Hear from the families and survivors. Meet your favorite true crime podcasters. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by Crime and Investigation. And I will be there all weekend with bells on and a GNT in hand. So come and join us. And remember to quote Mens Rea for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now. You can pay in installments, and tickets are, of course, COVID-proof. For more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. I can't wait to see you all in September. You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is part one of the story of Robert Howard and the murders of Hannah Williams and Arlene Arkinson. Saturday the 21st of April 2001, Hannah Williams left home at 11am. She told her mother she was going shopping. Shortly after this, she was seen in Deptford Market, just up the road from her home. But Hannah never came back. Deptford is in southeast London, on the banks of the River Thames, and was historically associated with dockyards and shipbuilding. In modern times, the docks were closed and the area was badly bombed during World War II, putting pressure on the traditionally working-class residents of the area. Some areas, however, are being redeveloped and gentrified, as is the case with many previously working-class areas of London. But that was not the case for where Hannah Williams and her mother lived in 2001. The houses on her little estate just off Deptford's busy high street were new and terraced, encircled by flats, and the open space the little homes crowded around was reserved for a cluster of cars. According to Susan McKay, writing for The Guardian, Hannah's parents were estranged and had separated before she was born. She'd had a hard start to life. At four, Hannah was sexually abused by her mum's boyfriend, and after that, she'd spent some time in care. But Hannah was a normal teenage girl. She had her nose pierced, very edgy for the time, and liked tops that showed off her belly. She looked older than her 14 years and was sometimes confident and loud around her peers, but she could also be bashful and naive, and she had a learning difficulty. Hannah wasn't fond of school, and sometimes she just didn't turn up. She did like fashion, however, and shopping or at least looking in the windows of the shops at all the clothes and accessories. That was what she was doing on the day she disappeared. She was always up the market looking at the stalls and in the local corner shop buying sweets. By 10pm, Hannah's mother Bernadette was worried. Hannah had not only failed to come home, but she'd missed plans to meet up with a friend that evening too. 
Hannah's brother Kevin, who worked in Deptford Market, had heard her that morning talking on the phone. It was a short conversation. Kevin recalled Hannah had only said, quote, I'm going now. That was it. By the time Hannah's mum began ringing her to see where she was, Hannah was no longer answering the phone. It seemed like it was switched off. That night, Bernadette went to the local police station and reported the 14-year-old missing. But Hannah had run off in the past before, and the officers fobbed her mother off. So Bernadette got a marker and some paper and a recent photo of her daughter and made up her own missing flyers. She began passing them out around the area the next day. A little while later, when Hannah had not returned home, and after it was discovered that a sighting of Hannah was incorrect, official missing posters went up in their place. Police officers interviewed family, friends, teachers, and spoke to people who lived and worked in the area. Rekha Prasad outlined in The Guardian how rumours had spread after Hannah's disappearance, that she'd run off because she was a troublemaker, or because she'd met some man. Then, in March of 2002, a body was found at the end of a tunnel in deep undergrowth in Church Path Pit at a disused cement works in Northfleet in Kent, 20 miles eastward along the River Thames from London. The discovery occurred when construction began at Church Path Pit as part of a railway development. Excavators had moved into the area to clear it for the project, And the gruesome discovery was made when one worker saw a foot sticking out from what appeared to be a rolled-up tarpaulin. The body was that of a young woman, but she was so badly decomposed that police could say no more than that she was between 14 and 20 years old and had fair hair. A description of the clothes the girl was wearing when she had died was also released. A distinctive black top with gold leaves across the front, a denim jacket, red trousers, and knee-length black leather boots. Pictures of some of the items of clothing were given to the press. Police began to compile a list of missing persons who fit that description. High on that list was Danielle Jones, a 15-year-old schoolgirl who had gone missing in June 2001 from Tilbury, three miles away from North Fleet, just on the other side of the River Thames. This missing girl had garnered significantly more attention than Hannah. But dental records for Danielle Jones didn't match those of the body found. There had been very little coverage in the press of Hannah's disappearance, but some people who had seen the missing posters or some of the limited reports in local newspapers remembered the description of her clothing and contacted police. Rekha Prasad reported that people were astonished it wasn't immediately apparent who had been found on that waste ground. Not far from where Hannah's body was found was number 93 High Street. This house was owned by Mary Scollin, who had been the partner of Hannah's father before he died. At the time of the discovery of Hannah's body, the house was rented out. But the coincidence piqued detectives' interest. It turned out that Hannah had been close with Mary Scollin and considered her like a second mum. Bernadette Williams didn't like Hannah going to Mary's to visit. So sometimes, Hannah wouldn't tell her that she was going over to see the other woman. When Hannah's body was discovered, there had been a rope wound around her neck very tightly, and she had been wrapped in a piece of tarp that had been cut in half, leaving a jagged edge. Police searched the back garden of Mary Scollin's house and found a piece of cut tarpaulin and some rope. 
On Saturday, the 23rd of March, detectives investigating the discovery of the body arrested a man in his 50s while awaiting DNA results to confirm the identity of the young woman. The man was described as being from South London and had been arrested just after 7am that day in Northfleet. He was later released without charge. Five days later, on Wednesday the 27th, police announced that they were confident, based on dental records and the clothing recovered with the body, that they had found the missing 14-year-old, Hannah Williams. A post-mortem had also revealed that the teenager had died by strangulation. Police appealed for information which would assist in tracing Hannah's movements on the day of her disappearance. Then on Friday the 17th of May, it was reported that a man in his 50s had once again been arrested by authorities in relation to the murder of Hannah Williams in Kent. Two days later, the man was charged and he appeared before the magistrate's court on Monday the 19th of May. The man was named as 58-year-old Robert Howard with an address in Mottingham, South London. He was remanded in custody, awaiting trial. That trial occurred in October of 2003. A jury heard that he had come into contact with Hannah through his then-partner, Mary Scollin, and that Howard had strangled Hannah with a 12-metre length of rope shortly after she disappeared from her home. Howard was found guilty by a unanimous verdict in this proceeding. But the public never heard that at the time. There are virtually no reports of Howard's trial from the time that it was going on, and no in-depth coverage of what had occurred to Hannah Williams. She was as absent from the public record and the media as she had been when she vanished into thin air in 2001. All of this was because, according to the BBC, the press had been banned from reporting on the case, as Howard had other charges pending against him, and in fact had a long history of trouble with the law. Around the same time that he was charged with the murder of Hannah Williams on the 24th of May 2002, Robert Howard had been charged with the cold case murder that was thought to have occurred in Castle Derg, County Tyrone, in Northern Ireland, in 1994. This was the case of missing 15-year-old Arlene Arkinson. Robert Howard had travelled a lot between the UK and Ireland. He was born in Wolf Hill, County Leash, in the Midlands, a townland halfway between Carlow Town and Abbey Leaks. Howard was one of nine children in the family and was born in 1944. According to Susan McKay, his father worked in the local brick factory and spent most of his time in the pub. Howard was a tall, thin young man and bright, but he mitched off school a lot, skipping days at a time. By 13, he had gotten himself into trouble. He got a conviction for burglary and was sent to St. Joseph's Industrial School in Clonmel. Conditions in that institution have been reported by those kept there as atrocious and harsh. At 16, Howard was let out of the industrial school and returned home, but he didn't stay there very long. His father kicked him out, and locals who spoke to Susan McKay said Howard had then lived rough in the area for some time, sleeping in haysheds and outhouses. Unsurprisingly, Howard got into trouble for stealing once again, and was sent this time to St. Conlitz in County Offaly. By all accounts, this was a particularly violent regime. When Howard finally ended his time there, he moved to England. Over the next 20 years, Howard would have addresses in Dublin, 
Cork, Wexford, Monaghan, Glasgow, Durham, London, and in Northern Ireland in Newry, Cookstown, and Castle Derg. It was there that he came into contact with Arlene Arkinson. This episode is sponsored in part by our good friends, Best Fiends. That's friends without the or. There are so many amazing summer activities back on the cards now, and we're all excited to do them all. The beach, parks, barbecues, camping, or maybe, just like me, you're looking forward to having more time to play Best Fiends, the five-star rated puzzle game packed with super fun, brain challenges, and never-ending entertainment. There's always new cute characters to collect or a new level to defeat, and another new level to defeat, and another after that. Best Fiends has over 5,000 levels to keep you challenged. That's enough gameplay to keep you busy from this summer till who knows? Make Best Fiends one of your summer activities. It's always fun, never frustrating, and keeps you coming back for more. Download Best Fiends on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Remember, that's friends without the or, Best Fiends. This episode is also sponsored in part by our good friends, BetterHelp. Men's Rea listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash men's. I adore anything that makes life easier, and BetterHelp is the perfect solution for looking after your mental health. What could be easier than an online portal where you can video chat, call, or text with your therapist from the comfort of your own home? And BetterHelp match you with a therapist who is tailored to your needs, and you can start online professional counseling in less than 48 hours. With their broad range of expertise, you can find the kind of therapist that may not be available in your area. And BetterHelp is available worldwide. BetterHelp is also more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is available, and you can send messages to your therapist between sessions and get timely and thoughtful responses. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash men's. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com forward slash M-E-N-S. And join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. And right now, BetterHelp are offering Mens Rea listeners 10% off your first month. Just visit betterhelp.com forward slash mens. On August 14, 1994, 15-year-old Arlene Arkinson disappeared from Castle Derg. Just like Hannah Williams, Arlene had not had a good start in life. Her mother had died when she was 11, and her father suffered from alcohol addiction. She missed her mother terribly, and her father wasn't able to look after her properly. But Arlene was the youngest in the family by a number of years, and so she went to stay with her older siblings. First, Arlene lived with her older sister, Anita. The two were very close but Arlene was sexually abused by her brother-in-law, Seamus McGale, who was convicted in 1993 and then served less than a year for his crime, being released from prison ten days before Arlene went missing. In the meantime, Arlene stayed with a brother, but her life was unsettled. Sometimes she'd go and stay with one of her other sisters, and sometimes she'd go out with a group of teens she palled around with. They'd go to pubs and clubs, and Arlene would be out well into the night. 
Arlene had gone missing before for a day or two as well, but she'd always returned or made contact with family within two days. Because of her family history and her troubled behaviour, Arlene was linked in with local social services. There were a few times that she was close to being taken into care, but Arlene really didn't want that. When Arlene failed to return home on the 16th of August, it was social services that were first contacted. On the night of the 13th, Arlene had been at her older sister Kathleen's house. She was there often. That night, Kathleen came home at about 11pm and soon after, friends came by and collected Arlene. She said she was going across the border to Bundoran in County Donegal to go to a disco at the Palace Hotel, but no one in her family had seen her since. Two days after social services were notified that Arlene hadn't turned up, the policing authority was called. At the time, in Northern Ireland, it was the Royal Ulster Constabulary, or the RUC. Police spoke to Arlene's friend that night that she'd gone out with, 18-year-old Donna Quinn. She, her boyfriend Sean and Arlene had been brought to Bundoran by Donna's mum's boyfriend. Initially, that man denied having been in Bundoran that night with the younger people, but eventually he admitted that he was, and he'd driven them all home, dropping Arlene off at a pub in Castle Derg. He and the others had arrived back at the Quinn's home at 3am. Patricia Quinn, Donna's mother, confirmed that this was the case. The man also said that the following day, Sunday the 14th, he had seen Arlene in Castle Derg, sitting in a light blue car in the company of a dark-haired man who he didn't recognise. That man, the one who insisted he'd dropped Arlene home, was Robert Howard. He had been living with Patricia Quinn for some time, but also kept a flat in Castle Derg on Main Street in the town. When police began their investigation, they heard that Arlene had confided in friends that she might be pregnant by someone close to the family, but not an actual family member. There was a question as to whether she might have gone over to England to have an abortion. But they were also told by her family that when she'd left Kathleen's house, Arlene only had one Irish punt on her. Arlene's description from the night out in Bundoran was released. She'd been wearing jeans and a t-shirt and was believed to have returned to Castle Derg that night. On Thursday the 29th of September 1994, six weeks after Arlene was last seen, the RUC arrested Robert Howard in relation to Arlene's disappearance and questioned him. Howard admitted that he had been drinking at the disco in the Palace Hotel with Arlene and the two friends and that he'd given them all a lift home. After dropping off the girl at half-past two, Howard told the authorities that he'd gone straight home. Any confusion about times and so on in his earlier statements, or Patricia or Donna Quinn's, was down to simple confusion, he said. A search of Howard's flat on Main Street revealed little more than the place was not well kept. Howard also told the police that, as it was mainly empty while he stayed with Patricia, the flat had been broken into and ransacked. Anything unusual the policing authority found there, Howard put down to this break-in. After days of interview, Howard was released. Searches continued for Arlene, but she never came home. In March of 1995, Howard moved to Scotland and took a flat from the local authority in Drumchapel, a suburb of Glasgow. Patricia Quinn followed him over, but returned some months later. After this, both she and her daughter Donna admitted that they had lied to the RUC detectives, 
telling them that Howard had been home at various points in the early hours of the 14th of August. In fact, they said, he had not returned to the house until near to 9am. Howard had a six-hour gap of time that was completely unaccounted for. In the months that followed, a petrol bomb was thrown into the Quinn's house. Farmland around Castle Dirk was searched again, and the case went cold. In April of 1996, the RUC arrived at Arlene's eldest sister's house, Kathleen, who was 28 years old at the time. They wanted to excavate her back garden. Kathleen was understandably upset. She slammed the door in their face, so the police battered down the door. They said that there'd been a tip which implicated Kathleen and her partner in Arlene's disappearance. There had been rumours in the community that something out of sorts had gone on between Arlene and Stephen. Kathleen was annoyed that the search of the house and garden might strengthen people's gossip about her, but she said at least it would clear her name. Nothing would be found. Kathleen's long-term partner Stephen was arrested and held for questioning for 32 hours before being released without charge. Kathleen told the press she was angry about this too. Stephen had had nothing to do with her sister's disappearance. Kathleen and Stephen had just started going out when Arlene went missing, but even then Kathleen had known him for some time, and everyone had gotten on well. Arlene had spent a lot of time around at her house while the teenager was living with another relative nearby. Kathleen told the papers that the family knew what had happened to Arlene, and who had killed her. The RUC, in response to a scathing letter sent by Kathleen and Stephen's solicitors, said that they had taken the very difficult decision to follow a line of inquiry which they felt could not be ignored, and pointed out that the investigation into Arlene's disappearance was continuing to be pursued vigorously. Kathleen and Stephen decided to sue the policing authority. In 1997, Gardy searched an area of bogland at Gortna Grace over three days for the missing Arlene. They made use of the diving unit as well as a specialist dog unit, but nothing was found. In 1999, the Gardaí searched an area near Pettigo in Donegal, near to the border. The RUC had received information about the movements of a person referred to as the chief suspect in the case, who had often gone fishing in the lake in the area. The bogland near to Pettigo was one of a number of areas that the RUC had identified as potential sites for the burial of Arlene. After this search was completed, Garda investigators said that they had made plans for a thorough search of the lake itself. Willie, Arlene's father, welcomed the plans, saying that he and the family accepted that Arlene was dead, but they wanted the opportunity to give her a proper burial. A month later, however, Garda sources said that the plan had been shelved. They believed that there was no point in carrying out the search unless further new information was provided. The family were upset and Kathleen despaired that her little sister's body might never be found. Further upset was caused to the family the year after when Stephen Scott, the man convicted of killing Oma teenager Sylvia Fleming, told fellow inmates that he was responsible for Arlene's death. But Kathleen said that unless Scott could prove he was involved, her main suspect would remain her main suspect. More than seven years after Arlene's disappearance, her father Willie said he believed that Arlene's body had been dumped in one of the many areas that saw construction ongoing in 1994, and that she may be under the foundations of a building put up at that time. 
He asked for police to look into this possibility, saying that security on the border was too tight in 1994 for Arlene to have been brought into the Republic after her death. Willie Arkinson went on to offer rewards, beginning at £5,000 and then up to £15,000 for information about his daughter's disappearance. Then, in March of 2003, the PSNI arrested a man in England and later brought him to Enniskillen for questioning in relation to Arlene's disappearance and murder eight years before. He was described as 58 years old and unemployed. This was Howard. But before he would face trial in Northern Ireland, he had charges to answer in London, the charge of murdering Hannah Williams. When those proceedings were completed and Howard had been convicted of murder and sentenced to life, attention returned to the case against him in Northern Ireland. When Robert Howard was led into Enniskillen Magistrates Court, he had to be shielded by police from a group of angry onlookers and Arlene's relatives who had gathered at the court. A week later, while in the Special Protection Unit of Magaberry Jail, Robert Howard was beaten up by two other prisoners and required treatment in the prison hospital. Police said that they were going to revive efforts to locate Arlene and review the various locations which had been searched before. Identifying where Arlene might be buried was a high priority for the newly established Policing Service of Northern Ireland, PSNI. Kathleen commented, quote, We are 100% confident that the police will find Arlene this time. The police have my total trust. My belief is with them now. I know from speaking to the officers in charge personally that they will not leave any stone unturned. I strongly believe that they will find her body, and that will mean they will get the evidence that will get a conviction. End quote. A search was carried out in Forest and Bogland near Kiltisher, about five miles from Castle Derg. Thirty officers took part in the search, but nothing was found. The next search was concentrated on a house in Castle Derg and a piece of land near to the town. Again, nothing was found. On Thursday, the 14th of August 2003, William and Kathleen arrived in Straban Magistrates Court for a hearing in the case against Robert Howard, who had pleaded not guilty to the charge of murdering Arlene. However, during his transport to the court from Magaberry, the prison vehicle had been held up by a traffic accident and the court was informed that they would not make it to court in time. William and Kathleen left court immediately upon being informed of this and looked visibly upset. Howard was remanded in custody to appear via video link in Oma Magistrates Court on the 26th of August. At that hearing, Howard's barrister, Gavin Wall, informed the court that it was nearly certain he would be asking for the charges against Howard to be dismissed as an abuse of process. Another hearing was then scheduled for the 11th of September. The actual abuse of process application took place over two days, but reporting restrictions were put in place, which only allowed the reporting of the final outcome of the application on April 15th. The grounds for dismissal of the charges had been, first, the potential of pre-trial publicity prejudicing the trial, secondly, the time passed since Arlene's disappearance, and finally, the alleged mismanagement of the case by the prosecution. These were all dismissed by the magistrate, Liam McNally. Next, Howard would face a two-day preliminary hearing regarding not only the charge for the murder of Arlene, but also five other charges. 
This was scheduled to occur on May 4th and 5th. After this hearing, on the 28th of May 2004, the judge held that there was sufficient evidence for Robert Howard to be tried on the charges. He was remanded back into custody, awaiting the date of his trial to be fixed. In the meantime, the 10-year anniversary of Arlene's disappearance came and went. On the 10th of September 2004, Howard appeared before the OMA Crown Court and Lord Chief Justice Brian Kerr, where he formally pleaded not guilty to murdering Arlene, along with five counts of perverting the course of justice between the 13th of August and the 20th of August, 1994. Around the same time, in the search for Arlene's body, a tactical support group of 26 PSNI officers searched a marshy area outside of Castle Derg for Arlene, but found nothing. In May of 2005, a jury of nine men and three women were sworn in before the Belfast Crown Court, and Gordon Kerr, Queen's Counsel, outlined the prosecution's case against Robert Howard. Mr. Kerr told the court that the Crown's case was a circumstantial one, but despite this, he would be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Robert Howard had killed Arlene Arkinson. Howard had asked people to lie for him in order to provide a false alibi for himself that night. He had changed his statements to police a number of times. In one incident, the day after Arlene went missing, he was with a friend in Castle Dirk, Patricia Quinn, and pretended to see Arlene in a car. Howard had driven with Mrs. Quinn following this car for some time to try and convince her that Arlene was alive and that Howard wanted to help find the girl. Later, Mrs. Quinn had questioned him further about what had happened to Arlene. Howard had told her, quote, people have secrets and want to keep their secrets, end quote. Howard also purportedly said to Kathleen, Arlene's sister, I swear I never touched her when asked where she was. He said he hadn't been in the car alone with Arlene that night, but had dropped Arlene's friend and her boyfriend home. That afternoon, Donna Quinn, Arlene's friend, gave evidence. She was 18 at the time Arlene went missing. She had gone to the disco in Bundoran with her boyfriend, Sean Hegarty. At the time, Howard had been staying at the Quinn's house. The group of four had been in a number of bars in Bundoran that night, and Howard had driven them home. He dropped Donna and Sean at the Quinn's house and then said he would take Arlene home. Sean had asked Howard and Arlene if they wanted to come in for tea. Donna recalled that Arlene had gotten out of the back of the car to sit in the front alongside Howard. Donna told Arlene that she'd call her later that week. The 29-year-old witness burst into tears as she confirmed that she had never seen Arlene again after that, nor had Arlene ever contacted her. Donna said that Robert Howard had told her that he'd left Arlene at her sister's home in Spa Mound, but the next day, he'd changed his story, saying he dropped Arlene off outside Wall's Bar, near to a flat that he had. Howard told Donna that Arlene had said she didn't want to go to her sister's. The following week, Donna had gone with Howard on another trip to Bondoran, and she recalled that the defendant had commented that he, quote, hoped Arlene was cold and hungry for what she was putting us through, end quote. Ms. Quinn also admitted on the stand that initially she had lied to police in her statement, saying that Arlene had not been with the group in Bundoran. 
she told the court she'd done this because Howard had told her to say it. According to Donna, he'd also asked for Sean Hegarty's number to ask him to say the same thing. On the second day of the trial, Donna's mother Patricia took the stand. Patricia Quinn admitted that in initial statements to police she had lied and said that Robert Howard had been with her the entire night when in fact he had gone to Bundoran with her daughter, Arlene, and Donna's boyfriend. She had also initially told authorities that she had seen Arlene in Castle Derg the day after the disco, but while being questioned, had told authorities that it was actually Howard who had seen Arlene. Patricia told the court she had kicked Howard out a few weeks after Arlene went missing, but admitted having visited him in a hostel in Churchtown shortly after and having gone to Glasgow and lived with him there for six or eight weeks. Patricia said she'd only gone to Scotland in order to try and get information about Arlene from him and said that they slept in separate rooms and hardly spoke to one another in this time. Mrs Quinn said lying to the police had been the biggest mistake of her life. It was at this point in the proceedings that reporting restrictions were brought in once again. Very little of what went on in the rest of the month-long trial is known publicly, bar that Howard's defence argued that the prosecution could only speculate about what had happened to Arlene, and noted that there had been various sightings of the missing girl in Ireland and England over the years. Without a body, how could anyone be sure that Arlene was even dead, they asked. As court proceedings came to a close, jury deliberations began. In June, the jury found Robert Howard not guilty of the murder of Arlene Arkinson by a majority of 10 to 2. The verdict came in after 23 hours of deliberation held over six days. The reporting restrictions were finally lifted when further charges against Howard in a separate case were dropped. These involved charges of unlawful carnal knowledge, what was then termed in the law as buggery and the indecent assault of a young girl between January 1990 and December 1994. The allegations had first been made in October of 1994 and involved a then 14-year-old girl. When the ban was lifted on the 20th of September 2005, it became apparent that similar fact evidence had not been allowed to be presented in the case. The jury had had no idea that Howard was already in jail serving a life sentence for the murder of Hannah Williams in London in 2002. They didn't know about his long criminal history. Kathleen said that she had been nervous that day when she heard that the ruling was coming in though she was anxious that people finally know about Howard's full past. She continued, quote, The jury are entitled to know what sort of person they are trying. At times it was like Arlene was on trial, not him. We only knew a quarter of his record until this year when we gave evidence. For 40 years he's been doing this, 30 by the time Arlene disappeared. How can it be a fair trial when the jury weren't told what he'd done? I'm angry. It's not fair on us or the jury. I expect those jurors will be saddened today, the same way I felt when they acquitted him. I wanted to scream at them, you don't know what he's done. A person like that living in a community, going about his business with nobody knowing. He was out on bail when Arlene disappeared. End quote. Robert Howard did indeed have a long criminal record, and his early habit of stealing 
had in no way foretold the kinds of crimes he would go on to commit. In 1965, at 19, after moving to London, Howard was sent to a Borstal in London for the grand total of nine days for attempting to rape a six-year-old girl. He had entered the girl's bedroom twice, pretending to be a doctor. In 1969, Howard got six years in Durham for the attempted rape of a young woman in her home. She had fled the house naked and screaming in the course of Howard's attack on her. He then tried to strangle her in her garden. In 1974, Robert Howard was back in Ireland and living in Cork. He got 10 years for the rape of a 58-year-old woman. The woman was described as vulnerable. Howard had tied her up in her own bed with a sheet, and she was found the following morning in a very bad state. He spent seven years in Mountjoy for this. In discussion with Maeve Sheehan from the Irish Independent, retired detective Alan Bailey recalled that in 1990, a teenage girl with an intellectual disability went missing from Dublin. She'd been brought by, quote, Bob from Church Street to Loch Ney in Northern Ireland, where he held her in a caravan. The 15-year-old had been tied up, and when police arrived, Howard fled. The girl's family declined to make a statement about the attack, and the matter was dropped. The detective also recalled that for a number of years, Howard had lived in the market area of Dublin city centre with a woman he'd married. Gurdy were often called to the house to intervene in violent attacks of domestic abuse that Howard's wife would never give statements about. In 1991, a 22-year-old woman had been held by him for three weeks. He had beat her and raped her repeatedly. She was later too scared to testify against him. In 1993, Howard had held a 16-year-old girl captive in his flat in Castle Dirk, County Tyrone, for two days, where he drugged her and sexually assaulted her. Howard had tricked her into coming back to the flat with him, on the promise that a young man she fancied would be there. But instead, Howard raped her repeatedly and threatened to kill her. At one point, Howard placed a noose around her neck. One evening, the girl managed to clamber out of the bathroom window on the second floor of the building and make her way to the nearest RUC barracks. Later, this girl, grown up, would tell her story. Priscilla Gayen spoke with Susan McKay, reporting in The Guardian, and described her treatment by the police. Priscilla said that they hadn't believed her. They asked her why she hadn't tried to leave the flat sooner. They banged on the tables and shouted at her. When she first told them her story, she had left out the fact that she had been hoping to meet with another man, and they grilled her over this omission, saying that she was lying. Robert Howard had been out on bail for charges related to this attack when Arlene Arkinson went missing, and six months later, in January of 1995, Howard was in court to answer the charges, but not of the original charges of five counts of rape and buggery. Robert Howard pleaded guilty to unlawful carnal knowledge, implying that 16-year-old Priscilla had gone willingly to Howard and that the only thing he'd done wrong was have sex with a girl a year younger than the age of consent. All this was despite the fact that police had noted strangulation marks on the young girl's neck. Her fingerprints were later found on Howard's bathroom windowsill and they'd also recovered the length of rope. Howard was handed down a three-year suspended sentence for the attack on Priscilla Gahan. Later, one police officer from Kent commented, quote, Howard had a predatory interest in young teenage girls. He plotted ways of being alone with them and was prepared to use extreme force to get what he wanted, end quote. 
In the late 90s, Howard had been investigated by Gardi in the South in relation to the six women whose cases were included in Operation Trace, the Garda reinvestigation of various missing women in Leinster, including Jojo Dollard and Annie McCarrick. However, by the 2000s, Gardi no longer considered him a viable suspect, as the crimes did not, in their opinion, match Howard's modus operandi. A week after the full extent of Robert Howard's criminal record was revealed to the public, Bernadette Williams, Hannah's mother, spoke to the press. She said she was sad and upset for the Arkansan family, and that, to a certain degree, she knew what they were going through. But then, Hannah had only been missing for a year, and she'd been able to have a proper burial for her daughter. Ms. Williams went on to say that the Arkansans had travelled to London during Howard's trial there for Hannah's murder, and that she felt that Howard might not have been convicted of Hannah's murder if the Arkansans hadn't given evidence against the man. Bernadette was also critical of the policing authority in Northern Ireland, saying that if Howard had been kept in jail in 1993, he wouldn't have been able to go on to kill Arlene, and then her own daughter, seven years later. On the 13th of October 2005, the Public Prosecution Service in Northern Ireland said that senior counsel had advised them that there was no reasonable prospect of Howard's previous convictions being allowed before the court. However, new legislation had been brought in in 2014 to allow evidence of bad character, which may have allowed Howard's criminal history to be heard. There had initially been some confusion in the media as to whether this legislation was in force at the time of Howard's trial. Then, Northern Ireland's main broadcaster, UTV, aired an investigative programme, Insight, on October 20th. It also detailed that Priscilla Gahan, the teenager who had accused Howard of holding her captive for a number of days in Castle Derg, had given evidence in Howard's trial for the murder of Hannah Williams in 2003. According to the Insight programme, at least five other girls had made complaints to authorities about Robert Howard during the period that he had lived in Castle Derg, and yet he was not brought in for questioning in relation to Arlene's disappearance for six weeks. Another issue was addressed in the programme. The producers had spoken to former Chief Superintendent Eric Anderson, who had worked on Arlene's case. The programme had filmed Anderson seeming to ask for money in return for interviews and the ability to review the material that he held privately on the case. This prompted a senior officer in Northern Ireland to order, in July of 2008, that all retired officers were to return any documents regarding cases in their possession back to the policing authority. The following month, in November 2005, Robert Howard was transferred back to England to Franklin Prison in Durham to continue serving his life sentence for the murder of Hannah Williams. After the airing of the Insight report and the publicity surrounding Howard's acquittal, public pressure began mounting on politicians in Stormont to set up a public inquiry to look into how it was that Robert Howard was free to murder 15-year-old Arlene and then leave Northern Ireland to do the same to Hannah Williams seven years later. An independent review of prosecutorial decisions was carried out by a retired judge of the Court of Appeal. The report was completed in July but made public in December of 2006. Similar fact evidence couldn't have been established in Howard's trial for Arlene's murder, the judge concluded, because Arlene's body had not been found 
and there was no way to establish her manner of death. Sir John McDermott went on to say that if Arlene's body was found, new forensic evidence may be sufficient to hold a second trial for Howard. Earlier that year, the police investigation into Arlene's disappearance had continued, when in February of 2006, the PSNI spent two days searching the Castle Dirk area for Arlene's body. One inspector said, quote, In the absence of any new information, we're still operating under the belief that she's somewhere around Castle Dirk. We are totally committed to finding Arlene's body, end quote. The search was called off because of bad weather. Kathleen said that she was heartbroken and couldn't go on like this for much longer. A spokesperson for the PSNI said the search would be continued at a later date, but nothing in the identified search areas was ever found. In November of 2007, Arlene's family's hopes shifted to the possibility of finding out what had happened to her at an inquest. A preliminary hearing at Londonderry Courthouse saw the coroner, John Leckie, rule that an inquest should take place in Arlene's case, and he said that Howard would be required to testify at it. A series of these preliminary hearings would occur before the inquest proper began to deal with procedural issues like the handing over of documents and securing the cooperation of those that would be called to give testimony before the coroner's court. The day after this decision was made, the Belfast Telegraph newspaper took the startling step of naming Robert Howard as Arlene's murderer, opening themselves up to legal ramifications. The article said, quote, You did murder her. Now do the decent thing and tell her family where to find her. And if you insist that we are wrong, then take us to court. End quote. Meanwhile, complaints from Arlene's family into how the case against Robert Howard had been dealt with were examined. On August 6th, 2008, a police ombudsman report was released which outlined that the officer who initially took statements from Robert Howard about Arlene's disappearance had very quickly noticed inconsistencies in his statements and had alerted his superiors. These detectives, however, took no immediate action. The report was critical of the 46-day delay in his arrest. In this time, Howard had sold the car used to drive Arlene home to someone living in the south of Ireland. It was possible that forensic evidence was lost, nor were detectives able to seize the clothing that Howard had worn on the night of Arlene's death. The ombudsman concluded that the RUC investigation into Arlene's disappearance was not carried out properly, and it upheld several complaints made by Arlene's family. Then, on the 19th of November, 2008, William Arkinson died. Kathleen said that her father had died with a broken heart. She told the press that her father would often drive into the countryside, searching for Arlene. In August of 2011, the PSNI said that they had spent six months planning fresh searches for Arlene's body in and around Castle Derg. They had identified 40 sites which were of interest to them and said that the search efforts, which would include specialist forensic officers and search dogs, would begin on the 31st of August. When the searches got underway, the family said that they were hopeful for results. But again, no sign of Arlene was found. 
Back in the courts, the preliminary hearings of the inquest into Arlene's death had opened at Belfast's coroner's court in November of 2010. However, six months later, Robert Howard's legal team sought a judicial review into the coroner's decision to hold the inquest. Karen Quinlevin, Howard's legal counsel, also sought to have reporting restrictions ordered to impose a ban on press covering the application to seek the judicial review. On December 7, 2011, Howard's legal team argued during judicial review that the inquest was an attempt to undermine his acquittal of Arlene's murder and reopen issues in the case because the family were unhappy with the outcome of the trial. A High Court judge dismissed Howard's application. At a preliminary hearing of the inquest held on the 6th of January of the new year, it emerged that Howard and his legal team were appealing the High Court decision allowing the inquest to proceed. This prompted an official from the coroner's office to later express doubts that the inquest into Arlene's death would go ahead within the next two years. The inquest was also likely to be delayed in part due to ongoing investigation into the case by the PSNI. A detailed forensic examination of a flat that Robert Howard had lived in in Castle Derg was carried out in September of 2012 by the PSNI. The property was, by that stage, derelict. The search was prompted by new information received by the Serious Crimes Branch. 800 forensic exhibits were removed from the flat to be tested. The results of this search included the discovery of two blood specimens, which were determined to come from two separate women but neither were in the National DNA database, nor did they match Arlene. The PSNI appealed to any women who had been in the flat on Main Street in Castle Derg to come forward. In February of 2013, coroner John Leckie said he would not be conducting a full inquest that year due to lack of resources. Kathleen Arkinson expressed her dismay at this decision and said that she and her family had once again been failed by the authorities. Judge Leckie said he had contemplated that hearings in the inquest would begin in April of the following year. Two months later, a lawyer appearing on behalf of Howard asked the coroner's court for permission to make submissions on matters outlined in the agenda and further requested that until this was done, the coroner would refrain from making any decisions. This meant further delays for the coroner's inquiry. At another preliminary hearing in October of 2013, the coroner, John Leckie, criticised the PSNI, saying that less than half of the police papers relating to the case had been disclosed to the coroner's court. In January 2014, the sensitive police material was ready for the coroner to view. After a minor delay caused by the need for Howard to get approval for legal aid for representation at the inquest hearing itself, Karen Quinlevin, Queen's counsel, appeared before John Leckie on behalf of the 69-year-old. She told the court that there were problems with the disclosure in the police case files, saying that the redaction in the files and of the documents was, quote-unquote, beyond a joke. Quinlevin said that she didn't have enough time to review the files either, and said that the inquest should not go ahead on its scheduled start date of the 12th of May. She also requested reporting restrictions and an interim order for reporting restrictions on the application itself. The interim order was denied. Henry Toner, Queen's counsel, appearing on behalf of the Arkinson family, said that this was just another example of an attempt to delay proceedings in the inquest. 
there were a number of issues to be argued before the inquest itself could begin. One of those was whether the coroner could make adverse findings against Howard, which would point to the involvement of Howard in Arlene's death. Another was whether a jury would hear the proceedings in the coroner's court and, if there was a jury, whether they would be told of Howard's previous convictions. Then, on April 10th, 2014, a month before the hearings in the inquest were to begin, it was adjourned. This was due to a development in the police investigation into Arlene's death, though the exact nature of this development was not outlined for the coroner's court. There was a possibility that new searches for Arlene's body could be made. A solicitor spoke on behalf of the Arkansan family on the BBC's Nolan show, saying, quote, On one level, we have to welcome what has happened because the criminal investigation, of course, has to take precedence. If there is any possibility, no matter how remote, the family would welcome that. Over and above the legal process, the family have always wished for a Christian burial for Arlene, end quote. What followed after this was a number of preliminary hearings for the inquest centred around the police files. It was revealed that around 40 folders of evidence, including transcripts, photographs, press cuttings, transmissions and police messages, were to be disclosed. Not only was the level of redaction questioned, but the reasons behind the blacking out of details was also sought. The coroner's court was told that no schedule of the reasons for the redactions had been made during the preparation of the files, as the process had been done by investigators rather than administrative staff who usually carried out such work, in order to get the documents ready quickly. The officers had not known that they needed to provide reasons. On top of that, files had been provided to the trial court in full, but the coroner was told that this would not be the case for him. Leckie questioned why there was a difference here. He also went on to deliver an ultimatum to the PSNI, saying that they had to make a final decision as to whether they wanted the inquest to go ahead or not with the knowledge that there was an ongoing investigation. If the inquest would interfere with the murder investigation, they must say so. A decision and clarity was needed. In the end, lawyers for the PSNI came back to the coroner's court in June of 2015 and said they wanted the inquest to go ahead and that they would not be preventing any new documents being provided to the coroner's court. There were just three files that the policing authority did not want to make public, and so they made an application for this. They wanted public interest immunity granted for them, which was nearly exclusively used for matters of state security. The PII was granted, but the PSNI did not outline why they had sought it in relation to these files. But by the time all of this was done, at this late stage, the lawyers said that there was no way that they would have the documents prepared for the beginning of the inquest. The date was put back once again. In July of 2015, the PSNI informed the coroner's court that once again, police felt that they would not have the files vetted in time for the new August deadline for disclosure. An application for more time was dismissed by the new coroner in charge, Mr. Leckie, having retired the year before. And then, on Friday, October 2nd, 2015, at 71 years old, Robert Howard died of natural causes in Franklin Prison in Durham in the UK. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. 
Part 2 will be in your feeds on Monday the 23rd. Thanks for hanging in there with me over the past week during the delay for this episode. As usual, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. A special thanks goes out to Shelley Martin, Michelle de Oud, Emma Stinson, Anne O'Donovan, and John Fitzgerald this week. Thanks to each and every one of you for signing up to support the show. It's hugely important to keep Men's Rea going, and along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes as well as Nifty Merch. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Best Fiends and BetterHelp. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show, so check them out in the show notes. Our theme music is Quinn's Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Cut tarpaulin and and found a piece of cut tarpaulin and found a piece of cut tarpaulin and found a piece of cut tarpaulin tarpaulin and found a piece of cut tarpaulin and found a piece of cut tarpaulin and some rope.